Cool. So, um, hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm super excited to have back on Menno Henselmans, uh, creator of the Bayesian bodybuilding method, and we're going to talk about that later, so not going to get into the, that too much, but um, you've had here on Menno before to talk about your overall uh, kind of history, how you got into the fitness industry and your Bayesian method. Uh, but now we're talking about something that I haven't really heard anybody asking you too much before, which is um, diet compliance, uh, adopting the fitness lifestyle uh, successfully in the long term, and self-control, adherence, these kinds of things. Um, and I, as far as I know, you are currently writing a book uh, on this topic. So maybe we could just start with that. So am I, am I correct that you're writing a book on this topic? Uh, yeah, this is a surprise. I am indeed writing a book uh, now. And um, uh, it's going to be uh, about how to stick to your diet, but a bit broader uh, because I'm going to focus on self-control. So um, tentative title is Die Will Be Done. And I'm going to look at how to stick to your diet, manage your sleep, cope with stress, uh, also how to be more productive in life, um, in your business. So I'm going to take a more big picture um View of these things and integrate fitness into the whole lifestyle about uh, what I think a successful lifestyle is and bodybuilding is a part of that I think bodybuilding is a part of a lifestyle of continuous self-improvement and the physical aspect is just one aspect of that uh, but it shouldn't restrict um, you shouldn't rest restrict yourself to that I think um, but a big part of it will be how to get jacked and lean that is awesome and um so it's funny because me and people who have been following you for a long time, I know that when they hear this, they will be super interesting and they will be counting the days when that comes out. But what um, what what is because for a lot of people, this will be a surprise that you're working on this. So what in, what spurred your interest into writing this book? Because a lot of people would have expected dip, a different book on training frequency or something like that. Uh, how come? So uh, in part because um, I want the book to be usually when I do. Uh, a seminar or a book or anything like that. I wanted most of the content to be new. Like many coaches, you know, they, they talk about the same things and uh, if they, you know, they would write a book now on training frequency and all my next talks would be about training frequency. But I've given that talk before. You know, there's quite a lot of information online about this now. So I want to bring out new content uh, also to get myself interested all the time. And actually, they, I have been working on these things a very long time. It's not like I decided like, now, I want to focus on this and I'll make it a book. Um, because as, as you know, in the PT course, the compliance topic has uh, always been a favorite. Actually, I think it's the top-rated uh, topic pretty much every course now. Uh, because it's a surprise, people don't know uh, these things and many people don't look at this from an evidence-based perspective. Uh, but way before that even, I'm known for my education in economics and statistics, but formally, uh, my education is actually known as behavioral economics. And that is very close to behavioral psychology, which is exactly the psychology of how you uh, can change your behaviors, like being more productive, sticking to your diet, these kind of things. So I actually have a very uh, strong scientific foundation in these areas, much more so than in exercise science and nutrition. Those are the things I mostly taught myself. Uh, but in terms of what I really learned at Warwick University and um, university college and I actually learned more about these kind of things um, and we now have in the Beijing team uh, Thomas Compidel 
uh, was a psychologist, so that helps too, uh, to do a lot of background research, and I, I discuss a lot of the ideas with him. Fantastic. Um, when speaking about adherence and self-control, now you really, like, on the internet, you, you come across as this guy who is, like, super rational, very, like, uh, calm, analytically minded. You you mentioned this a number of times yourself. Um did you did you you have any period in your life when you were struggling with um, like diet compliance? Like, um, okay, you've had periods, of course, when you didn't necessarily know what you were doing in the gym. But did you ever fall off the wagon? Went on binges? You know, anything like that in your past? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, you know, I'd be I'd be lying if I would sell this book as you know I've had all these these problems and I overcome them using these methods. I think I definitely have um, you know a natural uh, inclination to have high compliance, to be uh, disciplined and controlled. Most people uh, quite quickly uh, see me as such a person, a controlled person. So, but I experience all the same problems. You know, I'm not a robot. I experience all the same problems as other people do. And, you know, I have problems sticking to my diet uh, much more so now, actually, than uh, earlier, because uh, earlier I still had the motivation to, you know, I could progress very fast and you have that. That young drive as a novice lifter, and um, especially through my college days and the periods thereafter, I had more of the mindset that food is fuel, and not really mm. of um, you know the enjoyment of eating. And now I actually have more of the mindset that every meal in your uh, meal plan in your daily life should be something you enjoy, should be a really uh, a pleasurable event, something that I mean, in terms of happiness, there aren't that many things look at the research that can directly impact happiness i mean you have sex sleep and food food is like directly putting happiness into your body so i think it yeah. is a big component for like a hedonist someone who strives to uh, optimize well-being in their life to actually enjoy what they eat and not just uh, eat things purely from a mechanistic point of view to get the desired physical results uh, but that does come with more mental problems that you have to balance this the pleasure of eating with the results you want in the gym. So I've actually had more of these problems now than I had before, uh, which is also part of the reason to formalize this method more. So yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I, there, is, there isn't a person in the world, I think, who uh, has it easy, especially during something like contest prep. Even the most disciplined, strong-willed person on the planet will be facing a lot of mental difficulty in contest prep. So when you look at uh, the approaches of a lot of other coaches, you know, there are a lot of kind of phrases flying around. Um, some some people have more of like a champion's mindset. It's like, do whatever it takes, whenever you're starting, you know, just uh, eat chicken and broccoli, even if you're overweight and you have no foundation. Other people say that, you know, just make tiny little changes or very hand-holding. When you look uh, across the board in your colleagues, even evidence-based coaches, what are some of the approaches to changing behavior and making people successful with dieting that you would say you go against with the most and people would find it surprising? All right. I think uh, there are definitely two big trends there. One is more the general population, more the, um, I'd say, uh, mainstream approach to motivation. And one is more in the evidence-based crowd. Let's start with uh, the mainstream one. That is, I think, the you-can-do-it uh, approach. It's like you continuously tell your clients uh, they are the best, they can do it. Oh my God, it's so awesome that you've done your workout today and 
oh, you hit a PR on the bench. Fuck yeah, bro. And yeah. that um, it doesn't have any long-term effects, I think. I mean, you're just a crutch. If someone is relying on that kind of motivation uh, to get through their workouts and their days, then as soon as you stop the coaching, they will fall back into their previous patterns because you make them reliant on this external validation. And research generally supports this, that even self-talk is generally more um, motivational than um, someone else just saying, yeah, you can do it. It's very um, more enthusiasm or it, it can induce arousal much more than it actually induces uh, intrinsic motivation, as psychologists call it. So I think that is uh, something that uh, may have a place to foster a good client-coach relation with some people, but in terms of actually fostering long-term motivation to achieve your goals, it is almost entirely useless. And mm -hmm. the second approach, which is probably the more um, uh, less, um, the more unconventional approach that I have in terms of evidence-based coaches is that I'm not a big fan of what is currently propagated as flexible dieting. There's this idea now that, you know, uh, it's like organic. Flexible is a good term. And or it's like people see something that is marketed as natural or green or organic. And immediately they think, you know, intuitively, there's a nice association with it. And the word flexible has that too. Same for words like variety. Uh, these are things that many people very easily accept as true while they don't put any thought or let alone scientific support into these arguments. So you see a lot of people claiming um, the catharsis idea is a classic one. It goes back even to uh, ancient Greek philosophers that sort of intuitively came up with this concept that if you have certain cravings or you develop a certain urge, then you need to let it out. Otherwise, it will build up over time and uh, it will only get worse. And basically, that has fostered the idea of flexible dieting in the sense that you can just do whatever you want to do. And if you have a craving, you should give into it. And it doesn't really matter what you eat. You know, you can fit all of this uh, junk food into your macros and you get the same fat loss effects. So, you know, just eat your favorite foods, uh, even if it's McDonald's or whatever. And you can get the same results, but it doesn't work like that for most people. There is a ton of research that shows that consistency is one of the most important things as a predictor of weight loss success. So if you're comparing people, uh, which we also have good research on that, for example, maintain a certain lifestyle, which is conventional in uh, many bro bodybuilding communities that throughout the midweek, they're very strict. And then... The weekends, they sort of let go and they don't have a diet. They don't have a plan. They just do whatever feels good or uh, whatever their friends are doing. And if you look at long-term compliance rates, then it is very evident that the people who are more consistent, even if they are not as strict throughout uh, the midweek as the others, they do a lot better because they build habits, they build routines, and they actually change their lifestyle. And I think lifestyle change is a word that used to have very good connotations, but it is commonly uh, now seen as something that is more like a hippie uh, alternative medicine kind of uh, vibe um, yeah. that doesn't have any scientific support, but it is really, really true. It's a cliche because it's true. Lifestyle change is really what it takes to 
get lean and stay lean. For example, if you're doing, you're relying on an hour of cardio a day to get lean, you have to think um, and ask yourself, is this something you're going to be doing for the rest of your life? Because if not, and this is what it takes to get lean, how do you plan on staying this lean? Mm -hmm. Same with anything else in your diet. I think many people uh, are concerned too much with uh, acute choices, choices in the moment, like do I eat this or do I eat that? And they don't think in terms of a lifestyle, like how is my life when I eat this versus how is my life when I don't eat this? And it's a lot easier to make lasting changes if you think of it in terms of a lifestyle than um, which you don't. And in general, in terms of food choices, I mean, rationally speaking, you can think of a food as either worth it or not worth it. A food has certain benefits like the pressure, the pleasure it gives, uh, the protein content, uh, fiber content, these you can see as benefits. And then negatives would generally be caloric content um, if it's not satiating. If it has trans fat that is harmful to your health, these kind of things. And you weigh these, as an, an economist would do, and you weigh the costs and the benefits, and you decide the food is either worth it or not worth it. So from a rational point of view, it also makes sense to uh, restrict certain foods. The problem comes when people take this to extremes, and they um, are what um, is now called in psychology a restraint eater. So they don't... Um, they don't see it as a choice anymore. They think of a diet uh, where a lot of people go wrong. For example, Atkins diet, they have good foods, bad foods. And they think of them that way, not because they have decided for themselves these foods are worth it or not worth it, but because it is part of the diet. And that defeats the whole mm-hmm. purpose of uh, diet as a lifestyle change because actually the word diet, which is now seen as like this period of suffering that you have to go through to get the results you want, actually met, comes from uh, Greek and Latin, the aita, it meant way of life, which is, of course, completely different connotation than what we now uh, have with the word. And the problem comes with people that don't see it as a choice anymore, uh, whereas you should, uh, you should not think of, you know, you cannot eat McDonald's, but you should think of it as McDonald's to me is not worth it. And this also corresponds with research uh, finding that if you... Uh, make it a habit in people to, before they eat something, ask themselves, think of the caloric content of the food. And this is something I also uh, implement with a lot of my clients and tell them to do. Before you eat anything, especially if it's not part of your plan, consider what is the macronutritional content. And then this spurs you into thinking about costs and benefits. Because a lot of people, they have this idea that when they stop thinking about their diet, it's all reins are loose and they get, you know, the screw it effect and they make a lot of choices that they later end up regretting. So um, some things can be worth it. I'm not saying you should never have McDonald's. For some people, it may be worth it. They may like French fries so much that they're worth fitting it into their macros. It's worth uh, consuming some trans fats for and they accommodate the rest of their diet to uh, fit this in. I think for most people, though, it will be very difficult uh, to remain six-pack lean and eat McDonald's with any irregularity. So as long as you keep in mind that it is a choice, it can actually be very helpful to think in terms of food as worth it and not worth it and not be uh, not enjoy the flexibility you have too much. Because there is also a lot of research showing that people actually um, fare better on preset meal plans. And if you look at actually successful bodybuilders, athletes, people that have... Uh, are actually successful 
long term, and I define that in terms of leanness as maintaining your six pack year round, not just com- having competed or having dieted for a show or whatever, and got a six pack, and then the rest of the year people don't see if you don't post it on Facebook or Instagram or Facebook, but actually you're still kind of chubby and you just get lean once a year. But look at people that actually maintain a very lean uh, body fat percentage year round. They are almost always on set meal plans. They have little variety in their diet. Uh, many of these clients, they, they are actually concerned with this. They ask me, is it okay if I eat the same stuff every day? Well, as long as you cover all nutrient bases in your diet, that is perfectly fine. There is no need to you know, make it more flexible, induce variety. Don't fix what isn't working. Yeah. Um, you're really like, um, <laughs> you're, you're sp- speaking from my heart with a lot of the stuff that you just said about flexible dieting. And, um, in, but, and I'm really tempted to just go on a rant and really <laughs> uh, rave about flexible dieting. But instead, I'll, I'll, I'll try to play devil's advocate here a little bit. Because like what you just said about the temporary suffering period and the long-term perspective, many of the claims of the flexible diet proponents is that if you have a set meal plan, you have little variety in your diet, then that is by itself not sustainable because you want to live life and you want to be exposed to all kinds of stuff. I think you yourself mentioned that you want to try every food on the planet. And I think that's where a lot of people can get into trouble, that they get into a routine And yes, when you really create an environment for yourself, when you kind of isolate yourself from external kind of distractions like other foods, like social events, like going out, then it's easy to maintain a six-pack. But if you also want to live life, that's when it really becomes a balancing act of um, being flexible, having a flexible attitude towards food, but also still having that structure-based mindset um, in place. So what do you think is a sweet spot between being structured, you know, having having a meal plan, having a routine, but also being able to be flexible and saying what you're saying that I still want to try every food on the planet? Yeah, I think it's good to distinguish here between the type of lifestyles that people live. So my case is probably not a very good example. Uh, I actually eat at libitum, which means I don't track my macros the majority of the time, uh, which is also what I will discuss um, in that book, I think a lot of people in the very long run should not be uh, constantly tracking their macros. It's something you have to learn, uh, something you'll get great results with, but once you've sort of achieved the physique that you want, that limited dieting is probably a more convenient way to go to enjoy life for many people. Um, so that is a bit different than what I do, and that allows me to travel, try a lot of different foods, fit these things into my diet, uh, but the same thing still apply. I still have a lot of rules. And if I, uh, for example, try something that I know is more caloric or less satiating than my typical foods, um, I will see if this uh, matches with higher energy expenditure, which is often the case during like holiday periods and um, where you're traveling, um, or at least when I'm traveling a lot, I walk a lot, uh, ride bicycle a lot uh, when possible. Um, so I can factor that in. And then I make a strong distinction between things that, I can eat like as a lifestyle and things that I will try once. And I may always think very clearly about, is this worth it for me? Right. And um, for many people, if you're an office worker, for example, then routine and stability are definitely your friend because uh, when you get home late at the end of the day, you are what researchers call in a state of ego depletion. 
and you do not want to be concerned about you know thinking uh, oh, there's a variety or uh, mixing things up. This is the worst time possible to do this. So even if you plan on doing these things, it should be key, key word being a plan. And that is also for when you're, uh, you have social events, you're eating out with friends. I think that should be very doable to fit into a fitness lifestyle. Um, you, you should still have uh, certain guidelines that you live by and making conscious choices um, in these scenarios. And these can be the same kind of principles you apply uh, in daily life as in social eating. I think the crucial thing that uh, people do wrong is that they go either all in in terms of I eat like a robot, food is fuel, uh, I will skip all uh, dinners with friends, or they go to a completely flexible dieting route and then think, you know, uh, I should enjoy life, so I'm going out with friends, and that means I do everything they do, and I'm going to just drink a lot of alcohol and drink whatever they're drinking, even though I don't really like wine or alcohol. And I'm still going to eat, you know, consume a thousand, two thousand calories in the form of alcohol. Then my judgment's going to be completely impaired and I'm going to make a lot of choices that the next day I end up regretting. I think right. all of these things are uh, very hard to teach people beforehand. You have to teach them uh, how to plan. Make sure they make deliberate choices. And then you have to compare uh, body composition data before and after. I find that really helps to um, make an objective, retrospective um, conclusion about whether it was worth it or not. And that's also what I always ask people if they went on a holiday or had a cheap meal or, or something. I, you look at the data, you see what kind of damage was done, how much fat they lost or how much weight they gained. And you ask them, is, was this worth it? And without being judgmental at all, you just objectively ask them, do you think this was worth it? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You can also do this um, for pretty much any kind of uh, food that you try. And this really facilitates making more conscious choices. So the, I think the solution here is to maintain certain principles, um, which are um, the principles are fixed, basically. But the diet choices you end up making aren't necessarily um, all or nothing. Right, right. Um, so still speaking of this temporary period versus lifestyle kind of outlook on things. Um, first of all, what would be a few examples of things that you think it definitely falls under the category of not sustainable for most people and are commonly used ways to get fat loss, for example. So you mentioned a lot of cardio, so you wouldn't recommend that because most people will not keep that up for long. Is there anything else that comes to mind like this? Uh, cardio is a big one. Um, like I said, the, the idea of having five uh, strict days and two days where you sort of do whatever, that also is pretty destined to fail, I'd say, for most people. Uh, another big one is having a planned uh, refeed day. Refeed is now the euphemistic term for what people used to call a cheap meal. Um, yeah. um, to give an example, I've had um, uh, one client who uh, had been to, um, just to give an example of what I consider to be the absolute wrong mindset, um, had one client um, made pretty good fat loss up to a certain point. 
at some point, it seemed that the data in terms of energy intake and weight loss results were no longer matching up, which means often uh, underreporting or lack of adherence is the likely culprit. So we discussed that. Um, due to first, first few weeks, came to the conclusion, no adherence in all aspects seemed to be good. At some point, kept uh, standardizing this. I have, uh, as you know, in PT course, also a standard form now that asks very specific and concrete questions that make it very uh, difficult for someone uh, not to admit uh, that they didn't comply with the diet. And then it turned out, actually, throughout the whole period, uh, he had been eating, uh, having a Sunday cheat meal, basically. And this wasn't just your average, uh, you know, chicken or um, sushi rice or something, whole food. It was like nuts and chocolates and butter, those kind of things. Right. So um, I said, okay, this is probably uh, the culprit. You know, if you look at your data, you're basically in that single day, you're generally undoing the whole week of uh, fat loss. And now you have to go so low in energy intake throughout the rest of the week that uh, you could have been in contest prep, basically, but that one day you undo all of the fat loss. So you have to think about whether that is worth it or not. And then it turned out he'd actually been to uh, five different coaches before me um, who all basically came up with the same uh, conclusion that he would uh, not admit to having this cheat day in the first place. And eventually when it came to light that you know, it was really hard to get any leader while still having this probably 7,000 calorie day in there. That uh, he said, yeah, at each point when I, um, when that came, um, uh, when that became clear, then uh, he said, okay, he found a different coach. But I said, well, you know, that's not really the solution. You have to think about how you're going to make this a sustainable change in your lifestyle. Because if uh, you keep this day like this, then you have the only option that you have is either going extremely low in terms of calories for the rest of the week, which you now see is not sustainable, or you have to do something about that cheat day. And then he said, well, yeah, uh, I do think about uh, that cheat meal the whole week, basically. Uh, and it makes um, regular diet feed ter terrible, which is why he had so much trouble uh, with it. But he saw that as something to look forward to. But I find that it is not something you look forward to. It is something that makes the rest of the week suck. And yeah. that example I often give is that if you have Saturday as pancake day, then the rest of the week is thinking about pancake day day. Yeah. And that is for many people exactly how it is. If you have a certain cheat meal in there, it makes the rest of your diet, especially if it's something that you do not normally eat. For example, the rest of the week you find that uh, pancakes are just not you can just cannot squeeze them into your macros without being very hungry. Then, and you really don't even like them that much. Then, when you're uh, going on a pancake binge on Saturday, it makes all of the other days the food you eat, and we actually see this in terms of food entrainment, taste differences, um, reward pathways in the brain. It just makes all the other food taste less good. And it's not just that. Um, you do any damage in terms of calories, but it's also a lot more mentally demonic for that reason. Also, um, it disrupts your habit um, and the general principles that you normally make across the week. So usually a cheat meal like that, it has a lot of negative psychological effects. It also creates a craving rather than uh, what most people think in terms of if you give into it, 
and you get this catharsis moment and the craving is gone. If you actually think about what happens when you have a meal like that, is the craving gone? No, absolutely not. It's there. It's stronger than ever. Next day often already, you're thinking about, oh God, those pancakes were really good. I'd like to have those again. And it's not like you have a lot of pancakes and then, oh yeah, now I can live without pancakes for a month. That feeling lasts for about 30 minutes. It's like after um, you're completely hungover and a day you went binge drinking and the next morning you're like, I'm never going to drink again. And then next Saturday you're out partying again. So um, it's the exact same way with food. And um, other negative effects are that you actually create your own comfort food because you are teaching yourself that you're basically glorifying uh, the cheat meal or the pancakes in this case, that you're creating your own comfort food. There's research in this, especially in children, that shows that if you associate this kind of food with happiness and by uh, association, you also tend to uh, associate other foods then with unhappiness. So you're basically teaching yourself that pancakes are nice and other things are not nice. And uh, this means the rest of the week is a period of suffering. And that one day of very short-lived relief generally does not um, weigh up to the suffering that you induce for the rest of the week. Which is why in general, I think that cheap meals, if you want to eat something, um, that is not part of your, your plan or does not fit into your usual macros, you should try to fit it into your daily meal plan. And if you want to, if you want it so bad, you can work around it. For example, if I wanted to eat donuts and I'm bulking on 4,000 calories, I can probably, if I really want to, fit in 2,000 calories of donuts and then just eat soup or whatever for the rest of the day so that I won't be screaming hungry all day. And yeah, that would yeah. be a way for me to do that and not um, sustain any damage to my physique or have any of the uh, negative effects. I could, in principle, if I wanted to, do that every day. And I think that is how you um, should think of these things and not um, plan in Saturday as donut day because that is, for many people, not going to work. I'm glad that you mentioned nuts and chocolate and those kinds of things because I think for a lot of people... Um, kind of accepting um so for example saying no to ice cream and french fries because it's just not worth it is generally i think a lot easier because or sometimes it almost can be easier than saying no to things like nuts and chocolate and peanut butter which are which are you know you could make an argument that those are healthy food they could be part of a regular meal plan but as you know they're just crazy easy to overeat on and there are some I, I've fallen into this trap a lot of times before that I've tried to include peanut butter in moderation and I could always kind of justify buying it by saying that okay I will just have a certain amount and then it ended up with overeating and for th those kinds of problems do you have any kind of set um, strategy you'd like to use yeah you have to make a very strong distinction between um, food in terms of healthy, in terms of nutritional value, and food that is healthy in terms of uh, allowing you to sustain a uh, physique you want, which may not even be called the right word. It's probably not healthy. Uh, things like the satiety index of the food are a lot more important in that regard. So there, the research also finds that people that uh, think of food is healthy or, like I said, organic, these kind of things, then they um, become a bit desensitized to uh, other factors such as uh, macronutritional content. Uh, it helps to really remind people that um, 
specifically remind people of the macronutritional content of the food. So how many calories are in this? Peanut butter, that's that one scoop. Uh, you have to weigh that scoop, by the way, because what most people think is a scoop is actually more like three to five scoops, yeah. uh, which is can be a few hundred calories in a single uh, tablespoon, which is just racks of calories absurdly fast. So you have to strongly distinguish between um, healthy food as in being of high nutritional value and food that has an appropriate society index, appropriate macronutritional content, so that you can fit it into uh, your diet. And that is crucial um, if you want to stay lean and not just uh, healthy. Because, for example, paleo. Paleo, I think, is a very good example of people that have bought into the ID uh, successfully, often, that certain foods are worth it and certain foods are not worth it. And thereby, they, especially if you combine this with high-intensity serious training like CrossFit, generally get a pretty good physique. But they never... Um, they are often at least not able to get to that next level of having like ripped abs and they have some ab definition, but it's very hard for many of these people to get below about 15% body fat, I'd say, for the men, more like 25 for the women. And uh, that is because they don't make that distinction. They think of uh, foods as paleo or not paleo, and that determines whether they're uh, worth it or not worth it. Whereas really, they should be more concerned with the macros of the food uh, rather than uh, if it was healthy or paleo or whatever. Right. Um, like one last question on this this uh, outlook, like lifestyle way of looking at things is that, um, do you think that to some extent it is a matter of just being cognizant of the dangers of being too extreme and just be really conscious about how you are changing your behavior once, for example, a diet is over? Because for example, I, I've heard you mention that you have this strategy that you call keeping it bro. So for example, when you're dieting down, then yeah, you're saying, okay, I'm going to give up the enjoyment of food for this period of my life. I'm just going to look at food as fuel. But obviously you have to let go of that mindset once the diet is over. So do you think that if you are very careful and, and you're practicing a lot of self-awareness, then it can work to some extent? Yeah, the key difference here is when you're dieting, uh, what I generally recommend is that people think in terms of uh, exchanging foods for leanness. So that is a strategy I employ with a lot of clients, which is uh, what you were referring to. And basically that means that certain foods, um, as your energy intake goes down across a cut, which is often the case when you're not gaining uh, muscle so fast anymore, you know, you're pretty advanced training, you're not getting muscle so fast anymore that your metabolism increases throughout the diet, but it decreases because of adaptive thermogenesis and a lower body weight then you're generally going, not going to be able to fit the same foods into your diet anymore as before. And this is where the, the traditional eat less advice fails because people don't make these choices. They stick with the same food choices they have and try to eat less of them. And as the diet progresses, uh, there's less fat tissue, less leptin secretion, less appetite suppression. They get hungrier and hungrier and energy intake goes down and down and down. And they still try to fit the same highly... Uh, caloric foods like bread or bread with peanut butter, those kind of things, into their diet as they did before. And it just ends up being a negative spiral of more and more inhibition of their appetite, living with hunger uh, and craving these uh, foods that they have now a lot of difficulty eating until they're satiated. So I think it is crucial to make changes there in terms of the food you eat. And when you are talking about a natural trainee that undergoes cut and bulk cycles, 
uh, and stays within like six pack lean level year round, which is, I think, what most um, natural trainees should aspire to stay within like a seven to 15% body fat range where you never lose uh, your abs. I think that is very realistic uh, for most uh, men. Then uh, you want to have certain foods uh, that you don't necessarily exclude entirely, but that are depending on your current body fat percentage. So at body fat percentage X, I can I can eat these kind of foods. For example, I know that um, whole eggs and avocado they're they're okay until um, about contest level, and after that I have to be a lot more stringent. Uh, you know things like uh, when you're going really deep into contest prep, um, I often still try to do that at limitum as much as possible. Then at some point, you're going to end up with a very limited food selection. Uh, but that is fine because I know that these foods are still okay for me to eat and there are still a lot of foods that I can eat again when I'm bulking. Now, right. when you are taking this to an extreme level, um, which like contest prep, and you're going below this body fat percentage that you end up um, that you know is sustainable for you, then by definition, you are also, um, you can also employ non-sustainable diet practices. And that's where keeping it bro can be very helpful, depending on the person's mindset. That is the strategy I employ to indeed think of food as fuel. And you basically give up the pleasure of eating entirely to get um, to your contest level leanness. That is something I only recommend if you're dieting uh, below your sustainable body fat percentage. Because then you can imply also cardio, for example, unsustainable diet practices. Until you're at that point, I think a lot of people look too much towards the people that go to these extremes, and try to fit them into their own lifestyle. And until you're at that point, you should be thinking a lot more about gradual sustainable changes. Right. And, and just for, uh, for the geeks out there who love numbers, like myself, uh, what, like usually what kind of body fat percentages are we talking about here once that becomes necessary or advisable? I generally think that, uh, seven to, like I said, seven to 15% is the, uh, reasonable guideline in terms of body fat percentage range that is sustainable. For most people, it's going to be probably closer to nine to 13% if you're talking about men. For women, it's actually uh, very easy to determine this if you have an intact menstrual cycle because the lower end of the range is then when you lose your menstrual cycle. That is when uh, your hormone levels, especially anabolic hormone levels, will become impaired, impaired to the point that they will interfere with your long-term progression. So it's probably not a smart thing um, to stay below that range, not to even mention well-being in this case. And women have a lot more leeway in terms of higher body fat percentage range as well, and in that they have a very um, generally healthy metabolism. Their metabolism is a lot more resistant to um, glucose disorders and uh, elevated fatty acid levels and stuff than uh, men, which means they can often go up even to 30% or something and still be perfectly healthy. So for women, it's a lot more of a conscious choice. They have a lot more... Um, they have a lot more uh, variation in how lean they actually can get and want to get. So some women may be okay with um, having more of the thick Brazilian look and going up to 30% body fat and uh, just having a huge lower body and they'll feel great at that point. Whereas other women want to stay a lot leaner and they're more like 15%. So it's a bit much bigger range, uh, I'd say, for women. Uh, for men, it's definitely around the 10% range. Uh, right. And I'll oh, go ahead. 
yeah, the, the food choices, um, I think 15% is for many people a pretty um, a notable cutoff point that I see. Going below 15% is something that, um, or getting to 15% is quite easy for most people. Uh, in terms of if you eat paleo or you have some system of healthy eating, then most men, and they work hard, they train hard, they can get to about 15%. And below that, the trouble starts. You have to be more meticulous with planning, uh, psychological strategies, appetite management, those kind of things. Yeah, and, and while we are on body fat percentages, actually, like I would be curious on your take on this. I talked with this with Eric Helms and, and a lot of just my friends who are into fitness. For example, on the Performance Summit, I was talking to your colleague, Thomas, and um, some other guys too, and, and I presented my view on this, which is if you're eating, you know, your diet is generally very good, filling plenty of veggies, you know, fruits and even within that you try to choose the lower sugar fruits plenty of lean protein stuff like that some fatty like healthy fats you're well hydrated you do all all those things and you still have a lot of problems maintaining a given body fat percentage or you you just feel hungry then that probably is an indication that that is just too lean for you and um i mean i know that you're not really a fan of the set set point settling point kind of theory but probably there is something to say that like if your body is just constantly telling you that like dude i'm hungry i I just don't feel good do you think that given all those other factors are in place like food choices are generally pretty solid then that is an indication that dude you just have to get a little bit fatter and you have to accept it that that's just what's sustainable for you yeah that is definitely the the practical result uh i have this with a lot of female clients in particular that are um, men, not so much. Uh, women tend to be more prone to diet below their sustainable level, and they'll be at the point where they've lost their menstrual cycle, and they actually cope with uh, hunger a lot. Uh, their well-being is definitely down, libido is down, uh, and they still they insist on staying there, even though they have no uh, competitive or professional aspirations uh, with their physique. I think that is, for most people, uh, irrational, because ultimately well-being uh, should be uh, most people's top priority. At least if you're uh, have uh, a hedonist philosophy of life, and you're striving to uh, be happy in life, the mechanism is not that uh, you have a settling point or something. It is just that at some point um, you can pretty much always, um, with proper food choices and psychological tricks, um, keep hunger at bay at least until contest prep level. So. 7% or something for men, which is really in like early stages of contest prep, you can get there without any hunger, but it has to be get progressively more extreme. So at some point, you know, you could uh, live without hunger. And I think hunger is really the, the crucial issue here, but it will require sacrificing so many options and just living on veggies and lean protein will be very difficult uh, without a ketogenic diet to get enough fats in that um, the, the well-being simply it's not worth it so in terms of physical health you can easily stay at that body fat percentage i think a lot of people here also confuse physical and mental health i mean physically if you're dieting down almost all health markers improve if you look at any biomarker insulin sensitivity marker of cardiovascular risk blood pressure heart rate uh, cholesterol triglycerides uh, inflammatory markers uh, il6 everything improves with fat loss seriously if you just go to a doctor have everything scanned lose a lot of fat come back you'll be healthier in pretty much every regard the only problems 
physically, basically, are that at some point hormone levels tank, and in some people they can actually get below, uh, get into the clinical range, like testosterone, um, especially if people don't have enough fat in their diet and they have too much of an aggressive deficit. Testosterone can be reach very low levels for a natural trainee. Um, it's actually still debatable if that is really that bad for your health in the long run in terms of longevity and stuff, uh, but it's definitely bad for your well-being. So there is a big difference there in terms of your, your mental health, in terms of how happy you are, and physical health. So physical health is generally not the problem. The problem is mental health. So it's very, very much a psychological issue and a personal cost-benefit point where at some point it's just not worth it being that lean. And yeah. you know, the nice thing is you can shift that point by giving people better tools to manage their appetite, uh, manage their physique, so that this point shifts down. And that's generally what you see in that people... Um, they cut and bulk or undergo through these cycles in their life and progressively they do, at least if there's some progress, they do reach progressively lower levels of body fat. And every time uh, people do, do uh, a cut, they tend to get to a bit lower body fat percentage level. And ultimately when they've mastered how to diet and train, uh, individualize everything to their needs, they can get to a much lower level of body fat that they previously thought was sustainable. Right. And, and for you, how did this progress? So, um, you know, when, for example, when using ad libitum dieting and um, managing hunger and just feeling good, like, did you go through a progression where initially maybe you could only maintain like 15% body fat doing this, then later 12%, maybe now 10%? Was there an evolution for you? Yeah, that is basically exactly uh, what happened to me. Um, if we go even back, they go back even further. I started lifting uh, when I was 65 kilos. Like, which at six foot one is pretty skinny. Yeah. And then I actually dropped down to 60 kilos because I wasn't eating enough. Uh, I just, I started lifting and wasn't really paying attention to diet. Uh, dropped to 60 because I was leaner then. Uh, still not ripped or anything, but uh, like six pack lean at least. And then uh, I had bulk and cut cycles and at some point I learned to eat. And I think a lot of people, when they sort of learn to eat, when they bulk and they have to get their protein in, it actually becomes more difficult for them to reach low body fat levels because a lot of people, they intuitively, like I said, they just work hard. They don't really obsess over their diet too much. They don't have that much trouble getting to a lean uh, body fat percentage level. But when people are like, oh, you have to eat a certain amount of meals, you have to get your protein in, uh, you have more of these urges that if I don't eat enough calories, I'll sacrifice muscle mass. Those kind of things enter into their mind. Then they actually have a lot more mental difficulty in not obsessing over their food and getting lean. So that is when I, when I basically started semi-effectively uh, yo-yoing. And, you know, I probably uh, had a lot of cuts where I ended up at like 9 to 12%. And, uh, I remember from some of my first cuts with like really accurate caliper uh, meetings insofar as they can be accurate, put me at about 9%, about 7%. Breaking that, that 7% barrier, that range, um, it was definitely difficult and uh, eventually for photo shoots, like you can see in my first photo shoots, I wasn't as lean as in my later shoots. Eventually I did learn to reach that level and then yeah, he began to um, see how, what level of leanness I could maintain. And now I am pretty um, capable of having the, the largest amount of flexibility that I've ever enjoyed in my life in terms of food choices and um, what I eat and 
how I live and still maintain six pack clean year round. But for me personally, I've also definitely experienced that maintaining complete photo shoot conditioning is something I can achieve, but it's just not worth it. And uh, for my last uh, contest, I um, actually had to stay in contest shape for a period of uh, about six months, a bit longer even, because the original show I had in mind, I couldn't do because of IFBB regulation crap. And yeah. I had to postpone the show. And then I found out, yeah, I can maintain like literal contest level uh, leanness for a long time, but it was absolutely not worth it. Right. Yeah, and, and like like you said, for women, it's 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 almost easier to judge this because they have this clear cutoff point. Like, okay, I'm no longer menstruating. But for guys, it's more subtle things. Like, okay, like there's a beautiful girlfriend next to me, and like, am I really into the idea of sex? Or maybe I was into, but I'm not able to go again for like another two days or something. These are more more subtle cues that you pick up, and then you kind of have to make the the judgment call. It's like, okay, maybe I'm too lean. Exactly. Yeah, so um, just because we're running a bit low on time here, I just quickly want to touch on ad libitum dieting um, because this was something that I've I've been flirting with the idea for a long time. And now for the first time in my life, I actually did a very successful cut down to about 10%. I've now maintained it for about um, two months without tracking anything, even not even eyeballing things, anything like that. And I know that for me, I had to go through a very, very big mindset shift. And, and also another thing, which we may have a, like a few minutes to touch on that at the end, just being happy in general in my life was a really big key to making this work, which may sound a bit strange for other people. But, you know, you have a, you have a, a topic on this in your PT course, which is very extensive. And then you talk about various psychological tricks, you know, the fullness factor of foods, things like that. But from a mindset perspective, what do you think it requires for someone to make it actually successful to stay lean and, you know, maintain a six pack year round without tracking their food? I'd say if I had to give it in one keyword, it would be acceptance. You have to learn to accept that there is a certain level of leanness you cannot get below. You have to learn to accept that certain foods are not worth it for you or you cannot eat and have um, all the, uh, all the f- achieve all the physicals that you want. You have to accept uh, what kind of body structure you have, that maybe your abs aren't structured a certain way, that you have a certain fat distribution that is you know, up to a point, something you cannot change. And that is really crucial to, I think, being uh, content long-term with uh, the choices you're making. You have, you're fully accepting uh, just how things are and that is something that puts you in touch with reality that you see allows you to see things the way they really are not how you want them to be not how it's for others but how reality for you is yeah that that, that is a great point and and i don't know about you but for me ad libitum eating taught me something that was very interesting and that was it just makes you so much more cognizant of just general choices that you make with your diet. Because many times, you know, like people gain some fat and they track their macros and they, they think that, okay, the reason I gained fat is because I miscalculated the macros on that, you know, pack of frozen strawberries or whatever I ate, you know, like whatever. Some, some the, the macros were a little bit off and that's what caused it. 
But really, when you eat ad libitum, it forces you to recognize that, okay, the problem is that I was bored, I was already full, and then I just ate outside of my preset meal times, and I just ate way past fullness. And I've done that for multiple meals in a row for multiple days, and that's the problem. So it, it just forces you to be more cognizant. Have you noticed anything similar? Yeah, definitely. So I think hunger is a, a key uh, reason uh, people fail on their diets and uh, why people eat in the first place. I mean, it's the primary drive, but there is also a very large psychological component to ad libitum dieting. And like I said, that's the things that when people think they have to get their protein in, eat a certain meal times, eat a certain amount of meals a day, worry about muscle loss. If you don't have these things and you're eating really purely about um, or in, in tune with when you are hungry, then uh, you often eat a lot less. And it's often not hunger that drives you. It's things like ego depletion, boredom, um, self-medicating on comfort food, basically, that uh, make you eat, not really hunger. So it, it's definitely crucial to uh, address those psychological issues as well during a, a libitum diet and ideally also during a non-libitum diet. Right, right. And and just maybe just for the sake of like one one or two sentence um i heard you mention a number of times that you really prioritize emphasizing the importance of overall well-being and just being happy in life and i just came to this revelation that really uh when i'm happy when i'm i feel like challenged in my life i'm excited about things in my life i just have such an easier time adhering to to my diet and and just making good choices with my diet overall and um, how do you try to get this message across to people you're working with? And like, have you found this in your own personal life as, as well to be true? Absolutely. And what I've um, discovered in my uh, research on productivity, for example, for the book I'm doing is that the relationship is almost always the opposite of what people think. People think hard work pays off and it makes them happy. People think they get to that certain six-pack leanness and then they'll be happy. But it's the other way around. Happiness makes you productive. Happiness makes you stick with your diet. Being happy makes everything in life so much easier. If I compare myself how I am now, when I'd say I've designed my lifestyle so that I'm, I'd say I have a 10 out of 10 lifestyle in terms of my capacity to maximize my happiness now. If I compare that to when I was a business consultant or at college when I slept like four hours a night because I had insomnia, I was a completely different person. And it is so much easier to make certain choices uh, and accept certain things when you are happy overall in life than if you're not. And often many of the things is people look into these, the nutrition and how many carbs you're eating and you know the exact uh, parameters of their program. And they're ignoring much more important lifestyle factors um, and like stress and sleep and how happy they are overall in life. And they think the solution lies in their nutrition or their training but it doesn't. And in terms of clients, I've talked quite a lot of clients out of using steroids, for example. I've talked clients out of competing because they were doing these things not with uh, the, the idea that it would probably make them happier in life because they just had some idea that they, they had to do it. And it really probably, and um, in more deliberation, they could see that it wasn't in their best interest to do these things. So I think it's very good to make your clients aware of this, discuss why they do what they do, especially for more extreme things like competing. Uh, then just take everything for granted. 
Okay, that, I think that's a perfect closing sentence for this thing. And it's been awesome having you on. And uh, when can we expect this book to come out? <laughs> I'm not going to make any commitment on that. <laughs> I've seen oh. too many uh, people, uh, uh, Martin Burke and Val McDonald, when they, they talk about yeah. the book. And, um, you know, at some point, the hype uh, actually dies off. Um, so I'm not going to make any commitment on that. Uh, all I can say that now is... Um, I know exactly everything that I'm going to put in there. I have all the notes ready. I have all the research compiled. I have written about 100 pages. And I expect that uh, the book's going to be about 200 pages. So take with that how you, uh, take that how you will. And that's all I can say at the moment. Sweet. If you consider making it 400 pages, uh, we will all be even happier. <laughs> concise, though. Not going to... Uh, um, like most books, I, I hate books in general because uh, a lot of people think I, I read tons of books, but I don't. I like scientific papers because they are very concise and um, uh, you can soak up a lot of information quite quickly. Uh, I do intend to make it a lot more reader-friendly than a scientific paper. There's a lot of difficult concepts in the book, but I think um, like Winston Churchill said uh, in terms of um, uh, how long a speech should be. A uh, good speech is like a skirt. It should be long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to maintain attention. <laughs> that is perfect. And yeah, I completely agree. Um, recently, I got really pissed off by personal development books. Just so much filler, so much repetition. And yeah, like if, if I read your articles on range frequency theory and on the science of binge drinking, I get way more out of it than many of the several hundred page long books that I read. So yeah, you echo my sentiment. Um, cool. It's been really awesome to have you on any resources and, and just pointing people to your work where they can find you all that stuff. Um, my website, BeijingBodybuilding.com. Um, you can find everything on there. Wonderful. Cool. Menno. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Alright guys, Abel here again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe on YouTube if you watched it there. I come out with new content every week there, whether it's in the form of a podcast episode like this, which I actually aim to do one off every week, or some shorter informational video. Also, if you could just leave a comment and suggest some people that you'd like me to interview or just topics you'd like me to cover, uh, it would be very helpful to know how I can better serve you. And if you listen to it in podcast format, if you could leave a rating on iTunes, it would greatly help out the show, and I would be more than grateful for it. So thanks, guys, for hanging out up until now. Thanks for being here, and see you all next week.